Hello and welcome to TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you for joining us. The dog days of summer are here, and for some of us, that can mean we're moving a bit sluggishly, and we need to find that spark that gets us on track to continue to be the very best versions of ourselves that we can be. If you're going through that, please take a deep breath. I hope today's episode gives you the inspiration that you need. Late last year, we sat down with five of DFW's top commercial real estate executives to talk about their lives and careers to try to gain a little bit of insight into how they approach their work and what has made them successful. Our then-chairman, Bill Cauley of Cauley Partners, asked them about their start in the industry, how they lead their teams and companies today, and what advice they would share with college students and emerging executives eager to make their mark. We called the series Legends of Commercial Real Estate, and today we're looking back at the very best from our time with Jeff Swope of Champion Partners, Michael Dardick of Granite Properties, Michelle Wheeler of Jackson Shaw, Jack Matthews of Matthews Southwest, and Holt Lunsford of Holt Lunsford Commercial Real Estate. Today's show is the first of two best of episodes that we've planned around the first season of Legends of Commercial Real Estate. The second one will be available later this month, and you can get all five of the original long-form interviews for free wherever you download podcasts. You can also watch these conversations over at our YouTube channel, which is linked in the show notes. With that, let's get started. Jeff Swope and Holt Lunsford each began their careers with Trammell Crow Company, which once had interest in more than 300 million square feet of space and was among the largest developers in the country throughout the 1970s and 80s. Here are the stories of how they entered the industry by working for one of the biggest legends of commercial real estate in Dallas history. You know, work construction started out, I got exposed to it when I was in high school and college. I needed to make money because I was going to pay most of my way through. So when I started working construction, I was sort of fascinated by I look back at what was I fascinated about. I think I was fascinated by the customized nature of it. Yeah. Because it wasn't like he, it was programmed in a book. Right. And I just, the, the curiosity and all the things that came from that, I really enjoyed. So then I got my bachelor's. I was interviewing for uh, jobs. And I was at UT. And I was interviewing for jobs. And you sort of go, all the job opportunities I got were for big companies. And I in non-real estate, because nobody went to commercial real estate back then. Right. You told somebody you're getting real estate, it was because you were going to work in residential right. real estate. And so I uh, uh, didn't really even consider it. But then when I went to the VBA program, got these different job offers to be great companies. They were all bigger companies and very non-entrepreneurial. And so it would have been like like selling IBM, computers or IBM, yes, IBM, which would be like in a root canal. And that was the, for me. that was that was a great job. Back right. Then. No, I agree. You know, I, agree. I mean, I it agree. was it was Texas Commerce Bank, IBM, right. Procter and Gamble, all those kind of jobs. So uh, I had two professors that ended up uh, younger guys at that time, but they ended up climbing some huge uh, mountains themselves, and uh, they suggested. In fact, one of them said to me, "You know, you uh, uh, why don't you get in the MBA program? Just go straight through. Get your get in the MBA program." And learn, find out what you want to do. Right. And so I ended up grading for one and TA for the other and started the MBA program and immediately gravitated toward uh, real estate because I've listened to a group of Gerald Hines came in to talk to us and a group from Trammell Crow came in. Not a group, but a couple of people did. And I, I was fascinated with it. And I'd heard of Trammell Crow and heard of Gerald Hines. And so I, I uh, started focusing on that somewhere, probably mid, midterm in the, in, the, uh, in the MBA program. And so, where, where was your first job? My first job, Trammell Crow. 
And which was so interesting. You, with Hines, I was in my fifth round of interviews. Right. But I hadn't yet Mr. Hines yet. In fact, I don't know if I ever met Mr. Hines. I started, they started you low. And it was a bigger company. At Trammell Crow was still so small. They were hiring two or three MBAs a year. Typically, one started about 1968, 69. One from Stanford. One from Texas. One from Harvard. And uh, so he, was, he hired two that year. And I was one of them from Texas. The guy was from Harvard. And uh, I was just so blessed. It was back. You look back. I was just blessed. And so, like, when you were going for that job, how many people were you competing with? I have no idea, but it was a lot. A lot. So and, there was still but, a lot. And, well, but it was fascinating because you find out one opportunity somebody helped you with led to another. Right. And I went in. I had an interview. You start with Crow. You interviewed Trammell Crow. Yeah. That was your first interview. You didn't meet and start working That's up the cool. ladder. And so I walked in at 11 o'clock one Saturday morning. This is in, I think Saturday. it's in June. On Saturday, of course, Saturday morning, full, that was a work day, at least yeah. half the day was. Yeah. And so I, I was interviewing, and uh, 10 minutes into the interview, he said, I'm going to hire you. And he could have knocked me over with a feather because I was just going, turns out, I didn't know at the time, but those guys, a couple of guys had been at, were at Trammell Crow, had met me when they were coming down to visit MBA students. Yeah. And they had talked to one of those two mentors I had that were professors and that particular mentor had highly recommended me. That's all. Awesome. And so I had it just wired. I didn't know it. I was nervous as all. Right. So I'll get out, go in there. But right. Mr. Crow hired me. Then I didn't know where I was going to be and what I was going to do, but I know I was going to work with Trammell Crow. Okay, so once they hired you, what did they have you do? Start leasing warehouse space in Dallas, Texas. But it could have been. I committed to go to with him. I could have been in Chicago or San Francisco or Houston or wherever. It just had to be Dallas. So how did you get into real estate? Kind of give me like, like when you were in college, did you know what you wanted to do? Did you always think it was real estate or, you know, how did you end up in real estate? That's a great question. And uh, when I was in college, Bill, I had a misguided notion that uh, I wanted to be wealthy. And I'll circle back to why it was misguided, if you'll remind me, but I, uh, I wasn't nearly as thoughtful as uh, this generation but I went to an Allsup store, that's a convenience store in West Texas, and in a magazine rack there was a, uh, a magazine called the Texas 100, which was the 100 wealthiest Texans. And so I picked it up and took it back to the dorm room, and I thought, well, if this is, surely I can learn something from this. So I kind of divided that group of people up, and it was three categories. There were people in real estate, people in oil and gas, and people who inherited oil and gas or real estate. And I wasn't in the, I wasn't in the third, and I'd worked in the oil field, and I knew how hot and dangerous that was, so I said, I'm going to get in real estate. It was that simple. And then I broke it down further and looked at those guys that were in real estate, and I found one common theme, and that is everyone that was wealthy in real estate owned it. They weren't in the services business. They weren't in the appraisal business. They, they all had one common theme, and that is they owned real estate. So that kind of shaped my thinking. I said, if I'm going to have a chance uh, at, at making it as big as I want to make it, then I need to get real estate, and I need to own real estate. And at that time, this is 1986, the number one owner of real estate in the world was Trammell Four Company. So I moved from Abilene, Texas. Uh, my wife and I were married in college. We moved right to 
to Dallas and I begged and borrowed for a job with Trammel Crow. And how long were you there? I was there six and a half years. And what did and you do? You was, were you at right? Yeah, I got into industrial leasing. And so I leased the Northwest Dallas market under a gentleman named John Walsh, who was a marvelous uh, mentor <laughs> and leader. Yeah. And so many of those crow, crow guys were just, you know, they they populate the real estate community all over the country. And oh. I was fortunate to work with some great ones. So I started in leasing. Granite's Michael Dardick and Jackson Shaw's Michelle Wheeler did not specifically pursue commercial real estate careers out of college, but each found their way to the industry from the financial world. Dardick began his career as a banker, while Wheeler's background in marketing and management led her first to working for the city manager in Nacogdoches, Texas. Tell everybody, like, how did you get into real estate and, and why? So uh, I was a finance guy in college. And so when you're a finance guy, you go to work at a bank. Um, it really was never about, I thought I wanted to be in banking, but I did think it would be, I'd learn a lot because when, back when we came out of school, you know, you didn't even know what business is, even though you had a business degree. So I went to work at a bank, uh, Interfirst Bank, for those of you that are over the age of 50. Wow. If you don't, you can go Google it. Anyway, um, it was fantastic because they had a management training program where we rotated every 90 days through a different lending group. And I rotated through real estate and fell in love with it. I'd never been exposed to real estate. Don't admit it, my family's not related to it, but I just loved it. And, um, and then I actually got hired by one of my clients and left. I was at the bank about three years. Great experience, by the way. I tell young people all the time, I was spoiled. I had a big company that trained me in a lot of just business ways and professionalism. And I also made a great network of people in the real estate business that to this day I'm friends with and do business with. And so like when you took your first job as in the banking business, you had no thought or desire for real estate until you had gone through the process of rotating. Oh, I was just getting into the business world, trying to figure out what it meant and find my way. Uh, my dad was a depression era guy, didn't get to go to college. He was a salesman who made his way up through, he had a great manufacturing company that built chairs and tables, but he wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a dad that grew up in corporate America. And so I, he's very entrepreneurial. So I definitely feel like I was, I was lucky I got to see that. But so I, no, I didn't know anything about real estate until I got to the bank. You know, and this is kind of weird for me to say this because I, as well as I know you, but so was, where, where was your first job in real estate? Was it Granite? No, no, no. Um, oh, so give me, give me the, tell me first and to, to kind of current. Uh, well, so uh, one of my clients was um, Blackland Properties, which is related to the Estevi family. Sure. And uh, actually in a, it's funny how the world goes in circles. Uh, they owned all of the West End Historic District. Right. So I was a lender to them on several of those buildings. Actually, the West End Marketplace, I was a lender on, which, as you know, we ended up buying and redoing in the factory 603. Weird 30-year-later weird story. Right. Um, anyway, uh, there was a couple guys associated with them, and we were going to do festival retail marketplaces across the country, like they had done there at West End Marketplace. And we had a property in Atlanta, the Virginia Hollins uh, Trolley Barn. And uh, I went over there in 86, and the world blew up in 87. Right. And so that whole thing got put on hold. And what was interesting, Bill, you'll laugh at this because you're, I, I, 
I think you're literally the greatest salesman I possibly know. Um, they, they, this is when you're young and dumb. They said to me, hey, we really want you to come over. You're awesome. We want you to be our finance guy, but we can't afford to pay you anything. And I, and I was so young and dumb. I was like, oh, okay, well, how do we deal with that? And they're like, well, we created this joint venture with this company called Kennedy Wilson out of California, which at the time was a marketing company. Okay. Sure. And they said, you just need to go do some deals with them and figure out how to pay for yourself on the side while we're doing this. And you know, it's like young and dumb. I was like, okay, that's great. <laughs> so, so I ended up doing that and, uh, you know, kind of selling some deals through them to pay my way. And then the market turned and it was clear that it was just wasn't going to be a long-term thing. And because of the market crash, again, remember I told you I made some great relationships at Interfirst Bank and the real estate right. business. Well, one of them called me, they were over at Texas Commerce Bank and said, hey, we need to start a foreclosed real estate group. This thing's getting bad. You know, do you want to talk to us? And, and I literally said to them, hey, I'm happy to come in and be a real estate mutt. I don't want to be a banker. So if I can do real estate inside the bank, I'm happy to do that. And uh, thankfully, I got to do that. And so I went over there and we grew my department effectively, which was taking back foreclosed real estate. And then my job was to have a team that asset management ran it and then sold it, right? Because we didn't want to be in the business. It was, really was, was there value creation in there or were they just trying to get you to manage it and get rid of it? Uh, there was a little bit of value creation. Yeah. I mean, that was where, look, I'm an entrepreneurial guy. And so right. I, I would tell the bank, hey, let's not sell this for $10. Let's go spend $5 and we sell it for 20 Perfect. And I, I was really lucky again. I had a super boss and, and the CEO at the time was John Adams who just kind of let us do our thing. And, and thankfully, because I was really a mutt, they didn't know what we did over there because they didn't want to be in that business. Right. I kind of got to do what we, I could do things with just my boss. I didn't have to go to committees. And so awesome. he, he was great. He's a friend to this day. Taught me a lot. It was my first job, like growing an apartment and hiring people and managing people. Had a lot of interesting people because we were, you know, we had real estate people who were hiring inside the bank. It, it was it was great, and so for, well, and you were meeting a lot of your you're probably dealing with a lot of your friends, right? That had issues. Uh, totally. Uh, although yeah. I was young, I, I always like to say that that recession, I got a free pass. I got to watch it. There are later ones that I have tattoos from that I didn't get to watch. I had to just, right, right. But, uh, it was it was great, and and what it set up for me is as as we were kind of getting out of the business, I think you know maybe they wanted me to participate in going back into banking in some way or shape, but that really wasn't what I wanted. And so I do think I had a good seat to see this is back in 90. Right. That, wow. This may be an opportunity to get on the other side of the business and get back out. That's where people made mistakes too, right? Yeah. And that's where we started Granted Properties in 91. My mother was a real estate broker, but my path from college, I worked for a city manager uh, in college in the economic development part, uh, department in school. And so when I got out of college, my mother was a real estate broker. I came to Dallas and the city manager that I worked for in Nacogdoches, Texas Nacogdoches. was friend was friends with the city manager that at the time had started running Rosewood Property Company, a family office in Dallas, Texas. So it was people and perseverance. Um, my background was marketing and management. I went back to graduate school for accounting, but the city manager, it was people. That's how I got here. It was people and perseverance. I mean, I said, yeah, I'll go do whatever. And they said, will you go back to school at night and work full time and sit for the CPA exam? And I said, yeah, it was 1987. Just give me a shot and I'll show you that it'll be a good hire.
So that's so why how I Dallas? started. How did you get to uh, Dallas? My, my family was here. So okay. you know what? I, it wasn't planned. It wasn't anything. It was just what I knew. And at the time, I was broke coming out of school. Um, I was going to move back in with mom and dad and get, you know, some, uh, get my feet underneath me again. Right. Start, start working and then spring off. So what did you think you were going to do before real estate popped up? Did you have any idea? Because like I've got 17-year-old boy, girl twins, and my yeah. son knows what he wants to do. He wants to be in the real estate business. And my daughter has no clue. And I keep telling Kaylee, I go, Kaylee, you're not supposed to know what you want to do when you're 17. What? Yeah. So I kind of, th I always thought that it would be sales oriented. Um, right. And it's probably because my mother was in brokerage and I'm a people person by nature. Um, when I got out of school, though, in 1987, that was right after the SNL crisis. That was right, you know, when tax reform was being made, et cetera. I always also had a good acumen for math. And so when they said, would you go back to school and sit for your CPA? Because this is the job that we have in hand. The city manager is telling us this girl can do whatever. I actually did payroll for all of the city staff, firemen, et cetera. I did all of the accounting as an intern all through college. So I said, yeah, I can do that. So it was really just get my foot in the door and then I'll figure out what I want to do. But real estate is where I was focused primarily because my mother was a commercial uh, residential real estate broker. Okay. So where, where was your first move after working for the city? Uh, well, you mean after I graduated from college? Yeah. I worked yeah. I worked for the city in college. I Got graduated okay. from college. Yeah. So I worked full-time in college for the city at the same time as going to school. Good for you. I yeah. did the same thing, but I was yeah. selling vacuum cleaners and tending bar and stuff. Yeah, well, I was painting Greek letters and sorority stuff on the side, too, I and stringing tennis rackets at the country club. I had a wide variety of jobs in college. So always but, entrepreneurial. Yeah. Always, yeah. Yeah. So tell me your path to your current position. Tell, tell me what you've been. Yeah. So uh, I worked for a family office at Rosewood and I handled all of uh, Carolyn Hunt Trust Estates office work. Um, and from there, I left to join a guy named Jerry Fultz, uh, right. probably late 80s, early 90s, and started pitching uh, savings and loan work. All the, you know, the banks were taking back all this property. And so I would go in and pitch property management and leasing assignments to all of the banks because I had a, you know, a bank, I had a financial background because I had gone back to school, set for the CPA exam, et cetera. So I was pitching and bringing on property management and leasing assignments to Fultz Management. And I love Jerry Fultz. He was awesome. Yeah, he was fabulous. He was an East yeah. Texas guy too. So, yeah. I mean, I really, and you know what? That was, you really, you saw the brokerage side of the business. You saw the management side of the business. That was before tenant rep came into place. Um, everybody was so hungry back then. And so you had a lot of fun working with a lot of young, hungry brokers, learning the business, learning different owners, learning different ways of doing things, um, dealing with a lot of different financial people on what do you want to see? How do you want your stuff to be run? I mean, you were bringing on all these properties and then flipping them back out, you know, 60 or 90 days later. So it was a high volume, high transaction business at so, the time. So did you figure out a way to make a living during RTC days? Because, you know, I was, oh, those were such lean days. That was tough. Uh, it, that was still, I was still on the, uh, just on the paycheck side. I mean, right. it was, yeah, I was not, yeah. I, I was not a broker. 
by any stretch of the mat. I was more of a corporate person back then. Okay, and so, so what happened after Fultz? So after Fultz, um, uh, there were a lot of the Rosewood gang that left to go to two different firms back then. It was Intershop Real Estate Services or it was Regency. And so yes. it, it was yes. uh, um, one or two groups. So Pat Priest, Robert Mills, Denny Alberts, yes. Jane Modi, that whole group had left and we all went to Intershop, which was really doing retail centers and malls across the US for a private client over in Switzerland. And so we managed and leased and developed about 15 million square feet of retail across the US for- so what years would that have been? So that probably was like um, 1993 to probably 98 timeframe. Yeah. I, I love Danny yeah. Albert too, I think he's yeah. awesome. And so it was, it was a great learning experience. Um, we ultimately, you know, foreign exchange rates were really good. I ran a financial services division of Intershop. Uh -huh. um, and so they decided to exit the US. And so we worked for probably a year and a half with a group, Merrill Lynch out of New York and sold the entire portfolio and the operating company to DRA advisors. And so Intershop became Amerishop, but you essentially were becoming a third party uh, yeah. affiliate of yeah. DRA advisors managing their retail portfolio across the US. And so about that time, uh, Jeff Swope had gotten my name and number from someone because they, he had been busy doing fee development work for Nestle. Yeah. And he was trying to do more principle-based work. And so he needed somebody that could talk to institutions and do that partnership stuff, you know, all the yeah. compliance related activities. And that was my background. Um, I had a marketing orientation, so I was good with people, but I also understood numbers, et cetera. So he and Steve Golding and Steve Midori said, come over here and let's be partners and let's do this on the principal side. So that's what I did. So I was partners with Jeff and Steve and Steve and those guys for probably six years, almost seven years. I mean, yeah, doing development. Awesome. Yeah, great learning experience because I would really say, you know, prior the family office side, Fultz to a certain extent because it was more bank orientation, compliance yeah, yeah. related work. Yeah. And then even with the private REIT side at Intershop was really more structured related work. Mm -hmm. And then moving over to Champion was the what I'll call the cowboy era. <laughs> Yeah, you kind of got on the deal side, right? It, it was on the deal side, and it really just uh, expanded my right. whole yeah. And for somebody that that for somebody that had uh, come from that DNA, it was right. uncomfortable. It was, but it was um, liberating. It right. was it was highly liberating because all of a sudden you really got to use your marketing acumen. Right. and your structuring acumen to try to figure out how to do deals together. Well, and, and what a good team, too. I mean, that team. Oh, oh yeah. God, best in class. Yeah. I, so I mean, yeah, Swope was like, you know, I called him, you know, the, the fairy with pixie dust. He had He's amazing. great marketing spin, and, he, and you know, he gave you, he gave you plenty of rope and then would just, you know, crucify you to make sure that you were understanding decisions that you were making unbelievable learning experience 
Jack Matthews joined his family's real estate company out of college at the University of Western Ontario, where he earned an undergraduate degree in economics and an MBA. He went on to take over the Matthews Group in 1985, and the company grew from $69 million in revenue to more than $500 million. About 28 years ago, I was asked by the company I worked for to find a market outside of Canada that basically had the same business ethics, uh, was one flight away from Toronto, and they spoke English. That was my direction. So I got down to three markets, Southern California, Southern Florida, and Texas. Texas was the most beat up at the time, and I thought had the most potential. Right. So, um, so I chose you know, Dallas, Texas to invest in. I left the family company to go into the airport business, and three years later I had a chance to buy the, uh, the, the uh, Dallas company. Yeah. So in 94, I bought the Dallas company. And is that when you moved to Dallas? Yeah. Okay, so how did you get into commercial real estate? Why did you I pick? Was, why did I pick Dallas or why did I pick? No, what, real estate. How did you get into the business to start? It, it picked me really. Um, my father's construction company, interest rates went from 6 to 18%. He had a bunch of, I think he had the largest cat equipment uh, fleet in Canada at the time. And you could not work that stuff 24 hours a day and make money. Mm-hmm. So um, I basically got into all the different pieces of land he had, different assets he had, and turned them into cash. No one was buying anything unless it was a leased building or you know gas station site or something. So I ended up in the development business purely out of need uh-huh. and then found out I liked it a lot better than construction. So that's... So was the goal when you were doing that is looking to liquidate assets? Yeah, it was pure, purely finding cash. Got it. Purely finding cash. But you, so you so found the first, you had to develop to get to create value. Yeah, so one of the first deals I did was a medical dental building. Uh-huh. Yeah, partnered with a, a number of doctors and dentists and uh, filled, filled up the building, built it, and sold it. And everyone was happy. But really, what I wanted to do was just sell the land. Right. Yeah up making money on the on the actual building as well like matthews each of the legends we interviewed went on to tremendous success in the industry but not before facing challenges and overcoming adversity though swope went on to become a partner at crow by age 27 he didn't make a single lease in his first eight months on the job his prospects representing the trinity industrial district and the texas heat were starting to get to him i came back to the house after lunch and I got, we had those window units. I got in front of that air conditioning unit and just had that And I said, I said, I said, I said uh, am I, did I make the right choice here? Because it was one of those times, you're 23, 24 years old, you're going, man, this was supposed to be so great, but I'm failing. Right. And uh, <clears throat> lo and behold, that next week, and I, you know, thank you, thanks for the Lord's grace, the, the next week I made my first lease, and it was a big one back then. It was, 46,870 square feet. And it was a big one back then. That was huge industrial deal back then. So uh, anyway, made that deal and sort of was sort of off the races, gained the confidence, but I'll never forget. I still recall 47 years later sitting in front of that air conditioner going, what what am I doing here? Right. Well, because you're betting on yourself, right? It's scary. Yeah. They gave you a crow the training with a phone book, a list of the buildings we have and a telephone. Swope later depicted a relationship with the Nestle brand Carnation in the mid-1980s 
that paid off years later when the company had additional real estate needs. I think the one that, that really, when I look back, we'd done a deal for Carnation back in the mid late 80s, and uh, we built a building, and a year later, the floor slabs started coming up. And it was a mess. And the contractor we had had come in from Canada to hit the boom of the 80s in Texas, late 80s, and they'd gone bankrupt. And so the question was, who's going to pay for the $260,000 worth of concrete work? We didn't have to, but this was Nestle. We'd made a profit on the deal. So we decided to fix it. So and sure. it was a tough decision. It wasn't a tough, it was the right decision. Forget sure. that it was tough. It was the right so decision. Sure. Still it, hard to go write that check. Yeah. Right so, decision. you know, you wake up and you go, okay, you make that call. This is 1987, 88. And then in 1992, as we're nearly late 91, 92, as we kicked Champion off, who becomes our first client? Not, not Coronation, but Nestle, who had bought Coronation and the guy that we had done that for and kept Amen. him out of the ditch, which is always one of my favorite sayings, kept him out of the ditch. He was the guy making the decision. We were competing against all the big boys. It was going to be seven buildings across the country, five and a half million square feet of space to be built, which were big buildings back then. Still are. And uh, they picked us to do the first three, and the, the attorney, the, this corporate staff is going, how did we pick this new startup with this kid from Texas? You know? <laughs> we got all that business and just did remarkably well with it. And uh, we built all those buildings. But that was a case of that individual who we had helped get through that mess. It would have been a mess for him if we hadn't taken care of that floor. He trusted and he remembered. You, right? That's exactly right. Your relationally. Yeah. He, knew, he knew you he valued did. his him and yeah. his relationship. And so it was four years later, and, and he remembered. So, like, okay, so I'm not going to ask you how many cycles you've been through. <laughs> <laughs> but you've been through a bunch of them. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. so how do you get through it? I mean, like, we're in a time right now where, you know, the the – the political divide in the country. I mean, yeah. we just had an election that uh, it split pretty much down the yeah, middle. Yeah. It's I've never seen. Used to be you could sit and talk with someone and have a disagreement yeah. or have different yeah. philosophies oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. and not get get angry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it, it's just nuts what's but, going on. But so yeah. tell me how you get through these uncertain times. I mean, these because real estate's about it's a cycle, right? Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well. Somewhere, somewhere in the past, and I can't tell you exactly where it came from, but there was a communication that was said to me, and it was my early years. It may have been in college. can't even tell you who said it, but that 95% of the time and 95% of the people, when a stressful situation comes at them, they back off. They lose their energy. They lose their ability to, to press forward. Right. And so whether it was 1987, 88, when we were facing all the problems at center at the banks and the, all the meltdown that occurred and bankruptcy issues and all the things we were dealing with, I just look back at all those. For some reason, my screwed-up personality is such, I get stronger. Right. And I, and I don't know why that is. I can't tell you what it is, but this. The difficult part about it is once you learn that and you learn that a little bit about yourself, you find yourself feeling like you have to take that role. Right. And, you know, does that make, I mean, it's it weird. It's total sense It's weird. But once, and I, I also don't think it's something that's necessary in your DNA. Maybe it's in your dominance characteristic. Maybe it's in something that comes out in the DNA that you have and what you learned growing up. But once you learn that times get tough, the tough get going. 
Right. And you just sort of go. I mean, Mr. Guy was sort of Mr. Crow. Man, Crow may have had the impact on me because he was a guy when times got tough. He just didn't want to even listen to it. Sort of like me right now on any election stuff. That's over. Yeah. Okay. God's got it. He right. he, he made the call. I'm with he you. wants to go that route. I mean, I don't want to watch CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. None of it. It me is either. over. Okay. Me either. I'd rather let's watch reality TV than that. <laughs> and go. I don't like reality TV. Let's let's go to the next one. Right, I'm I'm with you. So I don't know if that makes sense or not. Well, but that's I think it, I mean I, for me, like when I'm in times when when a business when business is good, it's easy, right? It's yeah. but I mean real estate's never easy. Never but, easy. But it's, and it's you gotten, don't have to guess what to do. And it's gotten more difficult as it's gotten as we've gotten older and more involvement because it's become a much more detailed business. Dardick and Lunsford each described lessons they learned in the deal making process early in their careers that they still carry with them today. We did a, a, a large retail venture with four shopping, five shopping centers in four different states. And um, it was a life insurance company that wanted, they owned it all equity. And a new CEO had come in and they wanted to get out of the equity business in real estate, but they didn't want to run off. They had like $5 billion of equity real estate. They didn't want to run the assets off. So they wanted to do highly levered participation, participating debt so they could keep the assets. Mm -hmm. But Trammell Crow brought the deal to us at the time, and they wanted to be the developer partner, and we would be the capital. And it was a fascinating deal because you had three parties in the room that all had slightly different things they wanted to get done. Different motives, so right? It was a very highly structured deal, really complicated deal with all these waterfalls and buckets. I mean, it's almost like, you know, when you got to start drawing pictures in a deal, you, you've overcomplicated it. And For me, it is, yeah. Th th this was one of those, but... Honestly, it ended up, you know, working out fantastically for all three parties. And so it was a very tough deal to put together. But I will tell you in hindsight, and I learned this at the bank, just because a deal worked didn't mean you structured it right. You know, the market could be great and your structure just worked out. And, and I do think we structured it right, but it was also a great market. Wow. Okay. So how about, does a bad one come to mind? One that just kind of was a mess? Not one that was tough and worked out, but one that didn't work out and what you learned? For sure. Yeah. Uh, I've got a few of those myself. We did, we did a very large venture, and I want to be careful here about, because I don't want to uh, get into who and what, but we did a very large venture in another product type uh, with a uh, company that had done a lot of that business. And it was a very financially structured, geared, like too much leverage kind of deal. And, and it was large. We did a lot. We did a lot. And um, there, there were two big, big mistakes that I learned from. Number one is literally before we were closing the deal, I made the comment, wow, this thing is so financially geared. I feel like this is a Maserati or driving down the freeway. And if you just get a little pebble in the rocks, it's going to spin out. It's going to be a big problem. Like I made that comment before we closed, like should have been message to self. If you're thinking about this, right. Why are you doing it? Right. Why are you doing it? And then, and then, um, and this is a little bit of a different learning lesson is that, uh, there, there were several kind of leaders involved in that venture. And, um, I don't think I realized as much that one of them was the glue and that person went away in the middle of the deal and everything turned out different because the glue wasn't there. Got it. And, and the lesson, and you and I know this is, uh, there's a saying I have that's been learned because of tattoos I have on my back from bad deals. 
right. is that uh, good partners highly likely can survive bad deals. Bad partners can't even survive good deals. Right. And so it's all about the people, right? The people statement. And you and I know that, but sometimes you got to get tattooed to learn that. You think you're going to make money on a deal and you kind of look past that. Okay. So like, has there been a deal, a relationship that something that didn't work out well that you've learned from? I mean, do you have a deal story or a relationship and you don't, you know, you don't have to be specific if you don't want to be, but is there's people going to listen to this podcast that want to be you, you know, they want to get to where you are. And, you know, I, I don't know all that you've been through, but I know it all hasn't been easy. So give me a couple of tough lessons you've been through. Well, um, I have, uh, I've made my share of mistakes and uh, I would say that the toughest business uh, lesson uh, I've learned and if there's an easy tool to fix it, but uh, I'll just describe it real quickly is I had a, a big loan with GE capital yeah, and um, that loan was sold oh. and it was sold to, uh, to a, uh, kind of a vulture fund in New York and it was just a horrific experience because they their whole goal was to put us in default uh, we were actually trying to sell the asset and because they kept putting us and they wanted they wanted us to default on the loan so that they could sell it yeah well and, no uh, it was just a miserable experience and 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 so the quick the quick answer to that, uh, the quick fix to that question is we are in a problem is that we, we have not signed a loan since that we didn't have the first round of refusal on the note if it was ever sold. And I didn't know that to do that at the time, but uh, the lending community will allow it. And so I could have prevented that, that problem. But what I did learn from that experience, uh, and, and we got through it. We, it, it wasn't as favorable as I would have liked, but it, but it did cause me a lot of uh, personal uh, grief. And there was a, there was a grief tax associated with it, but <laughs> I kept a, a, a statement that my father gave me uh, when I was young, kept, it became real. And that is, when somebody wrongs you, he would say, whatever you can live with, I can live without. Wow. And he was a simple farmer, but after that experience, I, I, that statement became ever true. Whatever you can live with, I can live without. And that's kind of the way I processed it is that this guy was just a miserable human being. Right. And, and whatever he can live, he's got to live with what he did and how he right. did it. Right. And I didn't have to put any more water in a soup, you know, because he, he, uh, cheated me out of, uh, out of a potential profit. So, you know, we all find these mechanisms to deal with, with rotten people. And another great lesson from that story is just know your partner. That's yeah. the only bad partner I've had in 30 years. Yeah. 
and he wasn't a partner. He was a lender, but know your lender. You know, a lot of people make are making uh, uh, lending transactions with people they don't know. That's that's dangerous. I, I got to tell you, I I deal with lenders I know where I know the decision maker, and it's not the lender of least lowest cost. It's the lender that I know I have a relationship with so that if anything goes sideways, there's, we're not gonna get in a combative position, right? I mean, you learn, and I've, I've learned it from like seven, eight, nine, I had a couple of big banks that were lenders and they're not relational. I mean, yeah. selling your note, I've been through all the same stuff. And you know, one of the big ones I learned too was I had a partner where we did a programmatic deal and we had like five or six buildings together and they sold that was a REIT and they sold to a, a private equity firm, but I didn't have tag along rights. So I, I didn't get, I didn't get bought out when they bought. And I just got in with a partner that had, had a motive to get rid of me. And it was the same. I think, you know, having a good or right relationship with your partners is, is everything. Michelle Wheeler talked about how she improved in her role by strengthening the team around her, as well as several lessons she learned from the financial crisis of 2008. So are you a good delegator? Do you like to delegate or are you? I'm not the best. Um, I, I, I am getting much better now at it. Yes. So I hired a CFO. You know, I came on to Jackson Shaw initially because my background was still CFO re related. Yeah. That's, that, that's the comfort zone. Yeah. That's right. kind of where, that's where you revert back, you know, right. how do I bring an equity guy into this deal? How do I get lenders to loan me money on this deal? That's, right. well, you're nowhere that's the, without the money, right? Yeah, that's the, that's the easy part of things to me. Right. It's right. the, it, so um, I hired a CFO to replace me. When Steve Golding left and retired, then I took his role as president of the company. And so that was probably seven years ago, six or seven years ago. Yeah. I hired a CFO. So getting out of the way was step one and not reverting back to, right. okay, wh what are you doing? It doesn't mean that you abandon them. You, you still put your best team on the field every day to try to right. create opportunities for everyone. Right. But first step was moving out of the way. I mean, recognizing... Right you've got talent and letting those other people grow. What's, give me a problem that you've dealt with that's kind of changed, that you learned a life lesson, like uh, a bad being, deal or a bad relationship. Yeah, being, being, over, being over leveraged in 2008, going to CMBS, um, not having someone on the other end of the phone that you could walk through a deal with, understanding, you know, the big lessons learned on that. You know, we got greedy in well, 2008. Yeah. Well, we all started trying to use leverage to, to yeah. make returns. And I will yeah. tell you, it's kind of amazing because your story is so parallel to mine because I started in, in 86. I came to Dallas in, in yep. 86. So I went through all the same things you did. And yeah. You just look oh, younger than me. I'm yeah, glad. No, no, I don't. <laughs> oh, seven, eight, nine, though, the one thing I learned is I loved my basis, but my leverage, leverage was a problem. Yeah, leverage in, was a problem. In the wrong part. Yeah, wrong. It's, it's interesting. Our greatest, our greatest uh, problem going into eight ended up being our greatest asset coming out of the recession. We had way too much land on our books. 
-hmm. We've taken down large land tracts, you know, 120 acres in Maryland, 115 acres on 121, you know, big chunks of land all over the place that at the time we thought were fine. Sure. But during the recession, all of a sudden carrying that crap and it just wasn't, you know. So the what thing do you that, do about right? land now? You, you approach it differently? Well, we try to be a little bit more measured, but I tell you what, right now it's been uh, the institutional nature of what's happened with industrial particularly has made things tough. I mean, you're competing with all product types now. I mean, who would have thought we would have been spending what we're spending on dirt these days? Um, when industrial is competing with residential, is compete, you know, it's competing with everything now. Because we recorded each interview during the final months of 2020, conversation inevitably turned to the coronavirus pandemic and how it has affected the industry, our legends companies, and their individual leadership styles. Jack Matthews noted the importance of maintaining a healthy work-life balance. One thing that COVID taught me, and it, which was really an eye-opener for me, is I kind of liked the more balanced living. <laughs> you know, I... Jack, I actually think I figured out finally, and I'm in my, you know, late 67, that balance, I've always been working towards balance, but I, I think I've really kind of got more of a balance in my life. And again, I pick my spots, I work hard, but I, I, I'm not a guy that, that wants to visit at work. I just want to get things done so I can go also live my life. Is any, did you have anything like that hit you during COVID? Not during COVID. No, it happened during my uh, airport deals in uh, in Toronto, where I was basically working, you know, 90, 100 hours a week. Uh -huh. And uh, I came home and found out my uh, my daughter had been walking for three months, and I didn't know. Um, so I was like, okay. So when I moved to Texas, I really stopped working on the weekends. Um, yeah. It's it's a rare, rare weekend where I have a meeting or something. Um, so it's... Yeah, I, I work hard, but I but I limit it to certain hours. Okay, and so like during Monday through Friday, or how many hours a week would you say you work on Monday through Friday? I mean, are you working? Yeah, probably fifty-five, something like that. Okay, it's fair. Yeah, that's good balance. That's good, in my, in my opinion. I mean, because I'll get home at a reasonable time to have dinner with my family, but then once we we have all the family time, I my wife gives me an hour or two to go back and clean up emails and stuff, you know, to where. So I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not allowed to uh, clean up those emails after after I come home. That's great. That's even better. Yeah, I used to do that, and then she said, "I sit on the couch doing my emails," and she said, uh, "Why don't you just stay at the office?" I said, "Okay, I think I just learned something here." <laughs> I think your wife's smart. Oh, she's definitely smart. And you know smart. what? I think you're smart enough to pay attention too. <laughs> I, I try. For Michael Dardick and Holt Lunsford. The pandemic challenged them to be more transparent with their employees and change the way they communicate. Anything you've learned from COVID? I, I've got a couple that, I, that have cha I've changed on Outlook, and I was wondering if COVID kind of affected you anyway. Uh, well, I'd love to hear what your couple are. Okay, I, I found that the slowdown, the first 90, 120 days when we were kind of all at home, I actually enjoyed the slower pace. Like I, I am one that loves to run from one. I create fires so I can go put them out or go build another one. And, and I think I've found that I enjoy balance more than I thought I would. 
And I think you and I have talked about it. I've always been one that said, I don't think I could ever quit working. I mean, I might be able to work less, but I could never just go play golf because golf isn't as much fun as work. But I think I've learned that I want more balance in my life because I do want to, as I get older, live as well as enjoy business. And I yeah. wonder if you had any of those kind of moments. Well, I'll, I'll talk more of the, the business. I agree with you on the personal stuff, but I'll talk more of the business stuff. And it actually does go back to a little bit about your question about leadership, which is, look, man, I, I tell people all the time, we're all human beings. You know, we all take our pants off and go to the bathroom the exact same way. So we can right. think we've got these organizational structures and titles and bureaucracies, right. but we're all human beings. Right. And so I, I think it's important as a leader, and this really mattered in COVID, to be very real. And so, um, and to be very open and, and to be authentic and vulnerable. And I know there's a like cool titles and leadership books now, but it, to me, it's just like being a person versus yes. trying to be a, I'm Michael Darden. I'm not CEO. I'm Michael Dardick, right? That's a person. Exactly. And, and, and people, the title can actually get in the way for a lot of people. And so, um, you know, look, man, when COVID hit, you know, I was doing videos to our team saying, Hey, this sucks this is scary. So being realistic, but then saying, we're going to get through this, right? I'm, I'm not, we will all get through this on the other side. So I, I would tell you, but I, part of my leadership is I think I'm an optimistic realist. And so I start with reality. I don't run from a problem and identifying the problem. I then move to, okay, how are we going to go do something positive in light of that problem? Right. And right. so you know, that's kind of my, throughout COVID, I thought it was really important to stay connected, be honest about what we don't know. Still talking about that today in, in, with our teams about, you know, the future office, like what don't we know? And then right. we pretty good, pretty quickly go to, while we don't know this, we've got lots of people that have been, you know, networking and reading and learning and talking to our customers. And here's what we believe. Right. Here's the direction we're going to head. And by the way, if we're wrong, we'll adapt. You know, how do you lead a company like yours through uncertain times like this? I mean, is, have you learned anything through COVID? I mean, anything different? Oh, God. Or are you just doing all the same thing? You know, we're doing a lot of the same thing. I'm, I'm probably, I'm attempting to communicate more than I would otherwise. Um, you know, when we were all together, my style is to, you know, quite often, is just to roam around and touch people and talk to them. And, and I can't do that uh, like I did, but we're, we're trying to do it. Uh, I'm doing it with emails and it's a mixture of, of humor. And I know they think I'm the corniest guy in the world, but any, any kind of humor that I can find, I'll send out. And, good humor's and good. then, you know, then we will, I'll send out an email every week. Uh, with some word of encouragement and a scripture or a story and and then and then they just encourage my direct reports to do the same you know get we talk often about call your people get them on the phone and see how they're doing and and our folks have responded remarkably well we we're we've been fortunate in our business units that we hadn't had let anybody go yeah and and all of our, um, all of all of the businesses are are just doing really well. We're 
we are fortunate to be in the have category, not the have nots, like we see so many of our tenants that are suffering, but we've been very fortunate. Lunsford, however, said he believes brighter days are ahead for our city. We live in the greatest country in the world that, that allows guys like you and me and others to uh, be creative and work hard and, and you know, make our dreams come true. And, and then we, in my opinion, live in the best state in this country. And frankly, we're in the best city in the best state in the best country. <laughs> and so, you know, it's just, I think that our, our prospects in Dallas, Texas are just phenomenal. I, I just, I have more regrets because I can't get to all the the fun ways uh, to do business in Dallas, Texas, whether it's real estate or banking or or logistics, you name it. It's it's good in Texas, and in my opinion, it's going to stay good in Texas. And you know, one of our mantras at, at our company. Um, Bill is we just want to be in the game for 30 years we've been in the game and if you're in the game and you're just hitting singles and doubles every now and then period of time comes along where everything turns into a home run and when that's over you're back in the game right and that's what we do at our company is that we've we've got good people we've got a great succession plan I'm, I'm fortunate to have my sons in the business and yeah, that's and cool. Great folks that with them, young men and women that can carry this business forward. And so we're going to be in the game and I'm trying to encourage and coach from the sidelines and help those guys. But I'm telling you, Texas is going to be good, in my opinion, for the next you know 20 years. We've got even more insights waiting for you in our next episode in which our legends of commercial real estate detail their philosophies on business and leadership and reveal the advice they wish they had received as young professionals. Make sure you're subscribed to the show to get all new episodes right to your mobile device, because the second season of Legends of Commercial Real Estate premieres this winter. Until then, check out TrackCast for the latest event replays, roundtable discussions, and exclusive interviews from around the Real Estate Council. And follow us on social media so you never miss an update from us. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.